Hey, thanks for joining me. It's 20 to 9 on Wednesday evening, and I know this is kind of unscheduled, but uh, I had this kind of half prepared and I couldn't be asked doing a script about the whole thing. So I want to talk to you and answer a particular question from one of you about should I buy a hybrid? And if so, kind of which one? Because hybrids have grown in in popularity. They're sort of one in 35 vehicles sold here in Shitsville right at the moment. So there's that. If you don't know me and you've just stumbled across this live stream, I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. You can hit me up on the website for that. And of course, I would be overjoyed to help you. After we address this, there's some particular comments from you that I would also like to address. So stay tuned for that at the end. But this particular question this evening comes from a dude named Brian. We'll get to that in just a second. And I'd like to remind you that tomorrow night, Sydney time at 8.30, I'll be live here on the platform completely unplugged, as it were, answering questions from you. So get those ready. Ask me anything in the chat and I would be more than happy to help you. But first, here's this question about hybrids from Brian. He says, I'm looking at taking a step into the hybrid market. I'm certainly not ready to make the leap into an EV. So the hybrid electric vehicle slash plug-in hybrid electric vehicle option seems to be a reasonable stepping stone. Though the PHEV, the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, seems to be several thousand dollars more expensive and more limited in availability. And to that, I would say, dude, it's because the plug-in hybrid has a humongously bigger battery than your typical normal sort of self-charging, Toyota would call it, hybrid. And also usually a bigger electric motor as well because it does more of the heavy lifting in isolation more often. So those components are all expensive and this accounts for the additional cost of the plug-in hybrid versus the normal hybrid. Now, Brian goes on. He says, I have a trade-in, a 2010 Mitsubishi Outlander XLS, 60000 on the Odo, a car I inherited from my father earlier this year. It's too big for my needs. And to that, I would say... 10-year-old Outlander, even with low Ks, probably not worth all that much, okay? You have to be realistic. Although there is a bit of a perfect storm right now about used cars and the price thereof. They are quite high-priced at the moment, mainly because the car industry is failing to deliver new cars as quickly as otherwise it might, thanks to the pandemic, and therefore used cars have become somewhat more sought after in the case of people who really need a car now because... I don't know, their car's been written off, they've been boned and they no longer have a company car or something of that nature and they kind of need a car now. They'd prefer a new car, but if that can't be supplied, then they're in the used market looking at late model used and this is collectively sort of pumping up the price of used cars. So if you've got a used car to sell, it's a good time to do that now. Trade in on a 10-year-old mid-spec Outlander, probably about six and a half grand. If you can be asked selling it privately, of course, you'll get a little bit more, probably about eight and a half. So is it worth two grand to you to deal with no shows and people who might cough and splutter all over the inside of your late father's car? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. That's something you have to just make a personal determination on. Although 
in this situation, not everyone is equal. And for people who are potentially vulnerable, okay, like in particular, older women living alone who might not want a hundred potentially unsavory people knowing their address, then maybe don't sell your car privately. Or if you're going to do that, make sure those inspections take place on neutral ground, like the car park at work or something of that nature. Because letting a potential scumbag into your private domain to meet you and case your vulnerability as, you know, interview you as a victim, probably not such a good idea. There's a personal security dimension to this for many people. So just be aware of that. Don't focus only on the extra two grand that you might make. Focus on the totality of this situation. Brian goes on. I'm looking at a net changeover of up to 40 grand ish. So let's say including the trade, including the trade in or the private sale, probably up to 50 grand, let's say, which is a reasonable budget given the proliferation of hybrids recently, in particular Corolla hybrid and things of that nature. Uh, he says, I have a test drive in, I have had a test drive in a Corolla hatch, a ZR, a hybrid. It's nothing fancy, a bit small in the back seat. I wouldn't use it often, but it will do the job. I'm not sure the sedan model has a ZR hybrid option available in Australia. I haven't got back, I haven't got back to the dealer to confirm that yet well just let me handle that for you zr as i understand it having had just a brief look before going live now and it confirmed my suspicion which is zr is hatch only so if you want that zr spec you're not going to get a sedan so there's that brian goes on and says and the hyundai ionic that again would do the job but didn't ring any bells for me it felt heavier and the back window will need to get used to yeah it is a bit small from memory but it's been a while since i drove an ionic the pricing there is you know 40 ish early 40s for the hybrid just the so-called quote-unquote self-charging hybrid and about 49 grand from memory for the plug-in hybrid. And once again, that's because of the cost of that additional componentry. Now, Brian goes on again. He says, I appreciate if you can point me in the direction of other vehicles that might suit the price range that I should consider and recommendations. There don't seem to be many. And to that, I would say, dude, why do you want a hybrid? Now, one of the cunning ploys I have on my website when someone fills in a form to inquire about a new car is I always ask their postcode and that's for a couple of reasons not mainly this one but it helps me out here it's generally so we know which city you live in so we can attack the right dealers and talk them down on the price but in the case of Brian here I got to stalk his postcode to find out where he lives and he lives in the ACT in one of those sort of more outlying suburbs in the ACT. You might have heard Peter Harvey go on and on about Canberra. Well, that's that, okay, if you're not from around here, Canberra, where all the politicians hang out and the bureaucrats. So sorry to hear that, Brian. I, apolo I apologise on behalf of society for all of those bureaucrats and politicians being inflicted upon you in your neck of the woods. Nobody really deserves that. But one of the other th observations I would really make here is why do you want this hybrid? That's kind of important, right? Because 
you might want a hybrid for an irrational reason, because you might want to feel like you're doing the right thing. And I get that. That's altruistic. And I'm not talking about being a virtue signaling dickhead. I'm just talking about wanting to do the right thing by the planet, by the climate, by the environment, the right thing for future generations. I get that. But I also live in a world where the facts really matter. And if you live in an outlying suburb of a place like Canberra, your hybrid is not going to be in an environment where hybrid technology is designed to deliver what I would categorize as being real savings. And see, that right there that you just saw me do, that's the problem with driving your own TV control studio and talking unscripted at the same time. Cognitive bandwidth is easily overloaded and you can talk to the wrong camera. I hate that. Anyway, let us get back on track. Hybrid. <laughs> that's not funny. Hybrids actually do their mad energy saving voodoo in traffic, in dense traffic, in stop-start traffic, all right? Because what they do is they they catch energy that you would otherwise lose as heat in conventional brakes. And the electric motor turns into a generator under brakes. It does regenerative braking, charges up a battery, and you get to use that to go again when the lights go green. So that's lovely. But if you live in a not very densely populated place like Canberra, where traffic is a bit of a joke, although there is some, you're not going to be stuck forever in stop-start traffic in a place like Canberra, okay? So the hybrid system that you pay a great deal of additional money for, in that environment, it really is just excess baggage. And you know, every time I say this about the excess baggage and hybrids aren't that efficient on the highway and things of that nature... Somebody always says, oh, well, I've got a Camry hybrid or I've got a Corolla hybrid and it's super efficient on the highway. To which I would retort, it's efficient on the highway, not because it's a hybrid, but by some of the other engineering tweaks that have been done to that car to make it efficient in general. Okay, it's not the hybrid making it efficient on the highway. It's things like the Atkinson cycle engine. And the Atkinson cycle engine is just like a normal internal combustion engine. And what it does is a little thermodynamics hack with the combustion cycle. It makes the inlet or it makes the compression stroke effectively shorter and relative to the expansion stroke. So let me just describe that in a bit more detail so you get it. The Atkinson cycle, which is typically used in engines connected to hybrid vehicles, is like this. The inlet valve typically closes at about bottom dead center of the, of the inlet stroke, okay, so that the piston does not pump inlet mixture back out the inlet, because that does seem somewhat counterproductive, right? But in the Atkinson cycle, the closure of the inlet valve is delayed somewhat, slightly, okay, and some inlet mixture does go back up into the inlet port, and this means that the compression stroke is kind of smaller in relation to the expansion stroke after the piston fires, right? And that hack means 
that the engine becomes more efficient. The reason you compress the mixture anyway is so that the uh, expansion occurs through a greater range. It, it takes a fair bit of energy to, con to actually compress the mixture, but you get more than that back by virtue of the additional efficiency from expansion of the mixture during the, uh, the combustion cycle over a greater range, okay? And the Atkinson cycle is just a hack that makes that expansion bigger relative to the compression ratio, okay? The penalty, because nothing in life is free, is that you just don't get an, as much power as a conventional internal combustion engine because you're actually pumping some of that mixture back out before you burn it and each combustion event is therefore somewhat less energetic. So that's how that works, all right? But that's got nothing to do with being a hybrid. And likewise, the internal combustion engine in a hybrid is often connected to a CVT transmission, which is remarkably fuel efficient, although fairly uninspiring to drive. And hybrids often have low rolling resistance tyres, often referred to as eco tyres. And all of these things incrementally help you save fuel. So the vehicle itself might be reasonably efficient on the highway. But if all you're going to do is drive down the highway, you could get the battery and the motor and throw it out the window. The excess baggage would be lost and the vehicle would weigh less and therefore in these free-flowing driving situations you would actually save more money if you kept everything more fuel meaning and more money if you just kept everything the same and lost the hybrid part of the vehicle okay that's what i mean by excess baggage all right and if you just wanted a, a loping along efficient highway tour you could look at something like a Kia Seltos, which has a CVT transmission and a two-liter Atkinson cycle engine and none of the quote-unquote excess baggage. So these tweaks, these sort of efficiency tweaks do exist in isolation and it's important to realize that the hybrid part of the equation, which you do pay a substantial amount of money for, might be something of a fish out of water unless you are subjected to intense stop-start traffic often enough to make it worthwhile. And that's essentially what I wanted to talk to you about when it comes to the purchase of a hybrid, because it's one thing to want to do the right thing, and it's another thing to appreciate the implementation of the technology and whether or not that's actually going to work for you. And look, there's, there's no argument from me that you don't have to buy a vehicle for a purely rational reason. You don't have to do that at all. It's absolutely not necessary. But if you do live in a practical domain where the facts matter and you want to buy a hybrid to reduce your carbon dioxide emissions and all this other stuff, then it does pay to at least pay homage to the facts because they really do matter. Now, Brian goes on to conclude and he says, once I've picked what I want, I expect to get the, dead, the deed, not the dead, done through you guys. Car dealers certainly are not there to be on my side. No, they're not. And I would not ask advice about any of this stuff from a car dealer because clearly what they want to do is just sell you a car, like any car, and usually the most expedient car for them, like the one they've got in stock and the one they think they can get you across the line on. And that's why it is so important for you to do your research independently of the dealership because, you know, you just look up there at the clock on the wall in every car dealership. And I'm, I'm a broken record on this and I do apologize if you've heard me say it before but the clock up on the wall it's always like it's bullshit o'clock or at least the risk is 
that it's bullshit o'clock. And you don't want to ask advice from a car dealer for this reason, okay? Because he just wants your money. He wants ink on a contract and he wants you, as they say in the trade, off the market. So research first, test drive second, sign on the dotted line third. And if you want, hey, you can ask us. We can save you money on a car like that. I'd be looking at maybe not a RAV4 hybrid. I think that's probably a little out of the ballpark for the one you'd want for a changeover of 45 to 50 grand. But there's certainly the Camry hybrid, the Corolla hybrid. There's the Ionic, you know. what? Another thing that gets me about hybrids, and I'd be very interested in your view on this if you've got one, is why they tend to proliferate up here in the expensive end of the market, right? They, it seems to me that the hybrid you want would want to be like an EV that I would want would want to be a shitty little runaround, right? It would want to be a cheap, nasty runaround to take the kids to school and go to the shops and do all of the little running around that you would do and just plug in. It only need a small battery and it doesn't need to have all the fruit. I just want a cheap hybrid dude, you know, and then because I've got a two-car household, then I'd want a car that I could just drive long distances and that would probably be a diesel and it would probably be well-equipped. It'd probably have the heated seats and the air-conditioned seats and, you know, all of the features that I could afford. I'd buy a long-distance car like that and a cheap little nasty runaround that was a kind of quote-unquote eco car. And I'd love to know what you think about that and whether or not manufacturers are just getting this wrong by bringing in hybrids and EVs up the pricey end of the market because the technology is intrinsically expensive and I guess that's one way of selling it to the, the well-intentioned, well-heeled dude or dudette, but maybe they're pitching it wrong. Maybe they'd sell a shitload more of both if they were just nasty little runarounds that could save you money on all of the domestic running around. You could leave it parked at the station and not care and all of that stuff. So let me know what you think about that in the chat. And Brian concludes by saying, I'm sure you'll have other questions and hopefully I've answered them for you, Brian, and you may want to fill me in on what I need to do to progress arrangements. Well, I'll send you, Brian, an email uh, directly about all of that. But I wanted to talk to you about this in sort of more detail tonight here because the hybrid thing is something that a lot of people increasingly consider and many times they're just doing it for all the wrong reasons you know if you've got long distance touring in mind a small fuel efficient diesel car is probably going to be better for you than a hybrid and Unfortunately, I really don't believe that we can, as a species, consume our way to a green future. So if you really wanted to be green, the best car to own or buy is probably a 10-year-old Camry or Corolla or something of that nature and just run it into the ground because then you would not be incurring all of the upfront Enviro production costs. So I'd love to know what you think in the chat there, and I can see that there are a billion chats coming on through. So thank you for that. But I wanted, before we get into that, and we'll do a few uh, ad-lib question and answers in just a moment, but I wanted to cover off just a couple of other things because I've received some interesting feedback from you, quote unquote you, and I wanted to cover that off. So Adam S., who took a lot of time and carefully formulated uh, a bit of feedback for me here. Love to know what you think about that in the chat. Adam S. says, quote, This guy is just an arrogant wanker masquerading as an expert. Okay, you don't like Ford. I'm tipping. 
Adam probably watched today's pre-recorded video on why Ford is likely to fail in Australia, in my view. He says, is that really cause to bag out their customers and present your case with such selective data to support it? To bag out their customers, right? I did have a shot at Mustang owners, and it pains me to point out to dudes like Adam S., that this stuff is satirical in part, okay? It's better than being nasty and it still drives the same point home. And if you can't take that, then life must truly be hell on earth. But I am getting a sense that Adam perhaps is a Mustang owner. And you have my sympathy, Adam. I mean, nobody deserves that, mate. I, I kind of get where you're coming from. And present your case with such selective data to support it, such as independent ANCAP crash test results, which are done in uh, one of the most advanced crash testing laboratory situations imaginable by people with unimpeachable technical qualifications. So there's that. If that's what you mean by selective data about that shitbox's crashworthiness, Adam, then yes, mate, guilty as charged. How many people buy a Mustang as a family car? Pro tip, Adam. The term buy, when used to reference procurement, typically has a Y in it, dude, I'm just saying. Um, it's not whether you buy it as a family car, it's whether there is a risk that children will ever go in it because child safety in Mustangs is just terrible. And as a parent, would you not never forgive yourself if you placed one of your children in a car just however briefly to go wherever and got T-boned and you walked away, and they ended, and, and they ended up grievously injured and disabled for the rest of their life, as people who suffer brain injuries often are, or dead. If you survived, and one of your children was in that position, that would be the textbook definition to me of hell on earth. And that is a salient risk in that car. And for $90,000 or whatever the Mark I really is, it's absolutely unacceptable for it not to have first-rate safety credentials across the board. It, it absolutely is, in my view anyway. A biased opinion sprouted by a complete tool? Well, to be fair, I'd have to suggest that Adam, you're not the only bloke who's ever accused me of that. Perhaps that's for others to judge. I couldn't give a shit what anyone thinks about me, and that's one of the reasons why I can sort of sit here and do this, you know? I look forward to never wasting my time on one of these shitty videos again. But Adam, you did waste quite a fair bit of your time, dude, on actually letting me know what you think. So that's probably helped the search indexing of the video substantially, and for that... I thank you most sincerely. And I look forward to your assessment uh, in future too, because believe it or not, I do find these kinds of engagements terribly uplifting because nothing is more passionate than the guy who hates you. Have you ever noticed that? It's like when you go out on a first date with the ideal woman and everything goes just great. You know, it's just fine. You're on the doorstep. You've walked home. You've been the perfect gentleman. Two options at this point. The parallel universe splits to forks in the road and you go one way or the other. And you might get a, a chaste little kiss on the lips in one option and say goodnight and can I call you again and all that stuff, just like in a Hollywood movie. And you might both go away thinking, well, there could be some real potential here, you know. And in the other fork, down towards the dark side, you just reach around at that moment and you grab her on the buttock. 
which is, I think, a probably ill-advised move in the circumstances, having painted the picture of the perfect Brady Bunch engagement to this point. And I'd suggest that if that happened in many situations, I mean, you might get lucky, but in many situations, you might just get slapped. Am I right? (laughs) Okay. And perversely, the slap that you receive would be a more passionate engagement, wouldn't it, than the chaste kiss on the lips and the promise of perhaps more to come at some future date. So people who hate you, people who are disgusted by you, people who are incensed or outraged by you, the simple fact is that they are more passionate than the people who really, really like you. And that, of course, is why war is such a terrible thing because there's so much passionate hatred behind the actions involved. So I guess that's part of the human condition and perhaps one of the reasons why intelligent extraterrestrial life fails still to make itself apparent to the rest of us, perhaps at Area 51, but not here. Uh, Mark Modini now, who says, Hey, expert, WTF is a G-perb. G dash P-I-R-B. Does Ron Jeremy use one? No, I don't think so, Mark. It's not his kind of thing. Haven't seen that scene, but are familiar with emergency position indicating radio beacons. Take the advice that you regularly give. Proofread, dude. Pro tip, Mark. Proofread is one word, so you should proofread too, dude. Anyway, what I was talking about in a recent report when I did reference the G-perb, that is to distinguish from the old style of EPIRB, which is an emergency position indicating radio beacon. So you're an adventurer out there on the Canning stock route and something terrible happens, your vehicle burns to the ground and you just escape with your go bag and you've got no water and no support and no shelter and it's like 45 friggin' degrees and, you know, you got like one little bottle of water or something and a little bit of sunburn cream probably not looking that good is it you know so you get your epurb in the olden days and you fire it off and that sends a a message to a satellite search and recovery sort of satellite search and rescue satellite and uh, basically they launch a recovery aircraft and go looking for you and that was a real problem because early epurbs just sent a message to the satellite and you got a broad sort of indication of someone's position, but they then had to do a grid search to find you. And that was a little bit hit and miss, particularly in things like the open ocean, right? When conditions were, let's face it, fairly shit, which is when boats typically get upended. The beauty of the more modern kind, which is more a G-perb, and I always refer to them that way because they send GPS coordinates with the signal, dude, okay? So a G-perb, which is like a modern E-perb, includes your precise GPS coordinates in the signal. And I think you'd agree that's a much better thing because if I was perhaps injured on the Canning stock route, which is like 1,700 kilometres long, it goes from nowhere to nowhere through the desert in Western Australia, it's a bad place to have an emergency, I'd want to be pulling that tab flicking that switch whatever and I would want it to unequivocally identify my position so that I could be rescued as expeditiously as possible so Mark's comment in my view is one of the things that's really wrong 
with internet discourse because you know in the olden days someone would write to somebody else and they would say when you said gperb was that a slip of the tongue or did you actually mean something that i'm unaware of i've only ever heard of epurbs emergency position indicating radio beacons and this is what's wrong mark with communication in the internet age is that nobody gives anybody the benefit of the friggin doubt mate Okay, and that is a real problem because having a GPERB is better than having an EPERB. I think you'd agree. EPERBs are sort of old technology, the GPS much better. And you could have been more polite. You could have given me the benefit of the doubt. I would have responded to you in a dignified fashion and not sort of uh, implied that you're a bit of a cock for responding the way you did. So anyway, that's just an unfortunate part of <laughs> modern life, isn't it? Now, Benjamin Argus now says, as a bit of an off-road enthusiast, I am curious on your views and the beer garden physics surrounding the use of larger tyres off-road and on-road, more specifically how they may affect things like brake efficiency and effectiveness, general handling of the vehicle and any interference they may pose to modern safety devices fitted in many modern four-wheel drives. I'm sure you will have other interesting points to add, and I look forward to seeing if this question makes the cut. Well, it did, dude. So thank you for asking it. This is a very good question, actually, because a lot of people believe what they read in the sales guff about modifications of four-wheel drives. And I'd suggest that the vast majority of four-wheel drives that cop a lift and wear those uh, ridiculous mud terrain tyres generally spend most of their time uh, commuting on made roads, let's say, sealed roads in the main, okay? And even if you are the full-on outback or off-road adventurer, you are still spending most of your time on sealed roads, given the nature of where most of us live and where most of us might go to play in those situations. And therefore, you have to think about things like on-road handling and dynamics and brake efficiency. And Benjamin's pretty right about all of that stuff. See, if you increase the rolling diameter of the tyres, there is more leverage exerted on the brakes and it makes it therefore harder for the brakes to do any particular stop. And this increases the risk of the brakes fading away in some situations where they're used intensively. So there's that. And I'd suggest that it's the same sort of thing that happens to a speedo error. You know, if you increase the diameter of your tyres by 10%, there's a 10% speedo error there's probably a 10% reduction in brake efficiency, although that might be related to the square of uh, the rotation of the tyres. So it might be more than 10% in the case of energy-related matters. But there's also other factors at play as well, and that is that there's probably more slip angle between the steering position and the actual yaw response of the car when you're cornering on a sealed road, when you've got those big flexible tread blocks that are more mud terrain sort of related. And that probably means in extremis that you'll get intervention from, from systems like uh, stability control systems, because one of the things stability control does is it looks at where you've got the wheel turned, right? And the your response of the body. And if those two things don't line up, if you've turned the wheel too far, for example, for the your response that the body is uh, demonstrating at any point, then the system concludes that you're understeering off the road potentially. And it intervenes by cutting engine power and 
in extreme situations by applying the brakes to individual wheels to get those two variables lining up, the yaw response and the steering position. Okay, so if you change the relationship between yaw response and steering position by changing the tyres dramatically, then you could dick with the stability control system. And the other thing to remember, of course, is that larger diameter tyres typically require you to lift the suspension and that often changes cornering response and also driveline component wear because it increases the angle through which things like universal joints have to act and it also means that the suspension which is designed to get the wheels horizontal in the default sort of zero input ride state are often deflected a little bit and that can increase your tyre wear subject to not being able to adjust that out with a wheel alignment. So excellent question there, Benjamin. Pretty complex answer. And the reductio ad absurdum of all of that stuff is, if you're going to do that, do the minimum modification because the more the lift and the greater the diameter, the more likely it is that these factors will actually mess with you, okay? And one more dude now who I really did want to respond to in person and live is Uncle Joe. Now, Uncle Joe, right, Uncle Joe is this guy who thinks he's a pen pal and he, he corresponds with, well, he doesn't correspond with me because I hardly ever fire back, all right, because I don't want any more pen pals. I'm in the content, sorry, I'm in the content production business, right, and so many people reach out to me and I spend so much time responding to members of the audience who have sort of legitimate problems that I'm really not striving for additional um, communication at the end of the day. I just want to neck a bottle of red and forget about it sometimes, you know, which is an occupational hazard, I think, with uh, many journalists anyway. The, the, the bottom line is that Uncle Joe writes to me with all this stuff and some of it is not all that well researched. And I just wanted to share this one with you right now. It's another example of the dynamics of internet communication versus being polite and dignified and giving the other dude the benefit of the doubt. He says, a half inch can't be nine sixteenths JC PJ. Now, the PJ is he calls me petrol Jesus because I call Elon Musk electric Jesus. Okay, that's just for the backstory. You should have paid more attention in maths. Can't argue with facts. But then classic bait and switch, you come at us with really, really good maths. So I'll say it's just a lapse. Just a lapse. I agree, Uncle Joe. It's just a lapse. You're just confused, dude, about which one of us is having a lapse. And I'd suggest it's you. Because here's kind of the definitive proof. There's a reason that underlies this, but I'll just mess with the autofocus system and hopefully it'll pick this up. So let us see how we go with this. Sony's generally pretty good. Can you see that okay there? Because I do believe it says that this mighty King Dick Leyland, it's a classic spanner this, the Leyland King Dick 916th, half inch Whitworth 916th British Standard. And the other end, which you could probably see as well here, hopefully that's not upside down, 5 8 Whitworth 1116th British Standard. What the? <laughs> okay, how does that work? And I'd suggest that when you see typical spanners these days, if you're a young person, you typically see the mighty king in a manner such as this. Hopefully you can see that as well. That's a 46 millimeter across the flat King Dick slogging spanner. The mighty king. It's a hefty unit too, I must say.
<laughs> it's a conversation stopper, depending on the nature of the conversation, obviously. So the bottom line here is that most spanners of this nature and a typical spanner that you might have hanging up on the wall or in your toolbox, such as this baby right here, the 22mm metric spanner, okay, not a king dick, sadly, but still pretty nice piece of equipment. And in, you know, if you had to, you could use it to defend yourself a little bit. But probably not that effectively. They're across the flat spanners, right? Whereas these antique babies, like this, just shown, okay, they tend to be Whitworth, okay? And the salient differentiator for Whitworth is that the size of the spanner is not the size across the flats of the hexagon. It relates to the size of the thread, the notional nominal diameter of the thread, okay? So what happened was Whitworth sort of became morphed into, there's a dude named Whitworth from the 1840s, okay, and he became Sir whatever, Sir Whitworth of the Spanner or Christ knows. Anyway, he, he became some sort of, you know, royalty, because of his invention of this standardised thread in the um, 19th century, which was awesome. And Whitworth became British standard, like British standard fine, all right? And the thing that happened was that the Whitworth, the, the older Whitworth thread typically had the next sized up hexagon head on it compared with the later British standard, okay? So the actual diameter of whatever didn't change, but the hexagon did, right? And this leads to the confusion, right? So spanners like this are not across the flats. They're the size of the thread. And the reason there's two designations on them is simply because they change the nature of the hexagon rather than the thread. And of course, the across the flat thing on the spanner remained the same, and it now fits two different threads of 5 eighths Whitworth or an 11 sixteenths British Standard or on the other side, obviously, half-inch Whitworth or 9 sixteenths British Standard because the size of the hexagon is different for those... Uh, the, the, the size of the hexagon is the same for these two different threads. In other words, you know, your half-inch Whitworth and your half-inch British Standard have different across-the-flats hexagons. So, Uncle Joe, you could have been a polite dude too and I would not have categorised you as such a sort of shallow dick. I really would. And it just seems to me that if we all sort of communicated with each other online and steel-manned each other's arguments and gave each other the benefit of the doubt rather than just go, oh, that's you, you're just having a lapse, you tool, right? And things of this nature. And let's face it, the comments feed is a cesspit. But I really think society would improve if we did not fracture reality in this way. I'd love to know what you think about that. Now, let's talk to you in the chat feed as well, because I'm sure those chats have just been thrashing themselves through. Tone, who's a regular, who does give people the benefit of the doubt often, but isn't afraid to sort of speak up with his own mind as well. Inventor of the brilliant term Shemax. Should change your online identity to Shemax or something, Tone, I'd suggest. Anyway, I had never heard of Whitworth Spanners until just then. My mind is blown almost as much as it was when I learned about JIS screwdrivers. Now, there you go. That's a bit of tit for tat, Tone. I've never heard of JIS screwdrivers. I would have to go to Google and look that up, which I will do at the conclusion of this live stream. And look, the other thing that always gobsmacks me is there's all these tools online in the comments feed, right? 
and they go, they go, oh, you dickhead, this spanner cannot be half inch and nine sixteenths, you've just had a lapse, when pretty clearly you could find all of the information you need about things of this nature in about five minutes on Google. And, you know, to actually make you comment, you have to spend about that long thinking what you're going to say. You're already connected to the internet, so why not do the friggin' research, you know? Maybe that's just one of those things. Now, I have to, uh, I have to thank the Brujo, who's just sent me an amazing sum, 50 bucks. He'd say, I'd say you're our automotive Socrates. <laughs> Socrates. I've just got this picture of Socrates getting up to sort of turbocharger RPM in his friggin' grave. But thank you very much for the very kind donation and the endorsement. The Brujo, keep up the good work, JC, says a small tribute towards the Storyblocks subscription and wine fund, I'd suggest. Don't you worry, Brujo, I will put that very kind donation to Good Use Sun in maybe both of those areas. Um, now, Tim G says, are you starting a red room with those gym rings? No, I am not. Actually, I have this sort of multifunctional space here with the offset vice just there and the, you know, the chop saw, the mitre saw just there and a bench grinder and another grinder with a linisher and a wire brush on it just there and got all this sort of tool stuff and the, um, uh, the bandsaw, the metal cutting bandsaw is just over there and the belt grinder and that obviously you've seen the, the drill press and I got my chin up bar just up here you can probably see that in the background or I could I could wing it with this other camera that I've just set up here we go let us look up just up about there is the chin up bar and just down about there are the gym rings okay and uh, I decided about I don't know two years ago now to be you know somewhat less of a man and it involved, you know, coming to grips with the fact that I really had let myself go and I was, let's be kind, something of a fat, lazy bastard and uh, got <laughs> bolted the chin-up bar to the, um, to the wall and disgusted myself by not being able to do one and um, then I sort of made it my mission to, to crack ten. I initially wanted to crack five and then when I cracked five I wanted to crack ten. I currently sit on a PB of 12 and... Um, I've got all this other stuff as well, a few maces and some clubs and uh, kettlebells and I work out every day now and that's kind of cool, particularly given that we've had the social isolation experiment from hell this year, so it was an opportunity to be less of a man in many ways and uh, yeah, personal best of 12. The gym rings are just so that I can do inverted rows, they're really good for that and they require, you know, a fair bit of uh, core strength to do all of that. In fact, all of the stuff I use requires uh, a lot of core strength to to make it all uh, to make it all happen. And uh, punching bag as well, also a core strength tool from hell. And you got to remember that all these people saying, oh, "Just pick something you enjoy." Fuck that. Okay. The purpose of exercise is to crush your soul and make you think you are weak and pathetic. All right, so that tomorrow you can climb out of the pit of self-loathing and try a little bit harder to be slightly less pathetic. Repeat, okay? Uh, it's very interesting if you want to know a little bit more about that uplifting piece of philosophy there from automotive friggin' Socrates, then uh, I suggest watching any interview with Dave Goggins, G-O-G-G-I-N-S. He is a totally hard 
mother lover, former Navy SEAL, and he's got some interesting philosophical tips and takes on working out and what you've got to do. And uh, I kind of subscribe to a lot of that stuff. He's, uh, he's a very cool dude. He's very outspoken, much more outspoken than me believe it or not, and uh, not highly educated, but very insightful on that stuff. So Dave Goggins, G-O-G-G-I-N-S. He's got the same sort of hairdo as me, so he must be okay, I'd suggest. All right, now let us go a little bit further into some of this stuff. Uh, the Loon, I love these names. The Loon, JC may have a King Dick, but I have a knife-branded Cockmesser. <laughs> I love it. K-O-C-H Messer. Nice work marketing departments. I agree. What's better? The mighty king or the mighty cock? I really don't know. I may have been bested. <laughs> and who's going to argue with a dude wielding a knife? Branded cock. Certainly not me. Edged weapons. So scary. Anyway, not a knife is a tool. Anyway, it's not necessarily a weapon. So there you go. Christopher Taylor says you're going to start up Fit Expert now. No, no, I'm not going to start up Fit Expert. I think Al Bors and Tony have that one as well. They've got every other expert, but Auto Expert. So there you go. That was quite good. Cock messer. I love it. Godfrey Poon, who's a regular in the comments feed as well. Godfrey says Paul Fun. I drink it so other people have a chance to compete with me. Paul Fun. I'll see if I can find Paul Fun's comment. Ah, yes. Paul Fun says, quit drinking alcohol to improve your lives. That crap is cause of self-loathing. Well, everything in moderation, dude. The odd drink every now and then, probably not going to be as dangerous as many other uh, choices that we make in life. So, you know, I think these, I think these don't do that ever. It's kind of hard to subscribe to that, isn't it? We all do things that are mildly self-destructing or self-destructive or risky all the time. And, you know, some of that stuff is actually a, a, ve a vehicle for personal growth, you know, doing things that are risky, at least maybe not drinking, but drinking does take the edge off in certain confronting situations. And as long as it doesn't get out of control, then maybe there's no safe exposure to that, but there's no safe exposure to plenty of other things either, dude. Um, Trev Mao says, thanks again for the bucks you saved me on the Tucson. What are your thoughts on ceramic coatings? Some say to avoid as damage the co to the coating requires expensive recoat, unlike wax. Yeah, look, I did a bit of research into the ceramic coatings, the paint protection for ceramic coating, with, which constitutes ceramic coatings. Now, dealerships, they love selling you this shit, okay? And I have no doubt that a ceramic coating is a hard uh, surface that does protect the paint underneath, all right? So no argument from me on that. But... The question I would ask is, does the paint actually need that? Because modern paint has a fairly hard, some would say rock hard, clear coat over the colour. All right. So if you get a minor scratch, it's not actually the coloured coat that's going to be bearing the brunt of that assault and it can be buffed out in many situations, right? And the other thing which I really do take issue with here is that if you go to any of those quote-unquote reputable ceramic coating mobs and you read the fine print 
It is so difficult to comply with all the terms and conditions that are required for the continuance of your warranty, right? It's got all of this inspection stuff. You know, you've got to take it and have it inspected by one of their authorized dudes every so often, every period, whatever it is. And all of these other terms and conditions, it is almost impossible to comply with all of the prerequisites. So, on balance, I think they make a great many promises and it may be curing a problem that doesn't actually exist. And it's very hard to comply with all of their terms and conditions so that you will guarantee yourself ongoing support. And it's pretty expensive as well. So for all of these reasons, I'd suggest ceramic coatings, not so much. All right. Now, James Barry says, imagine buying a Mustang and then seeing a Stinger drive past. Well, yeah, see, Stinger doesn't have any of that 56, 57 years of Mustang heritage, right? So it's not a pony car as such, but it is a rear-wheel drive grand touring car with a V6 twin-turbo engine. And pretty reliable too so there's all of that isn't it and it crashes okay it's got a pretty good and cap score five star if memory serves but don't quote me on that i haven't looked that up for a while but yeah for all of these reasons i think the thinking man would buy the stinger for grand touring but the passionate enthusiast dude would say hey the mustang it's a classic you know i'm just concerned about the engineering being so underdone in mustang on child safety and you know if you could guarantee the kids would never be in it then okay you can't do that. Um, G, uh, CG recommended says turtle wax ceramic coating spray is 40 bucks from super cheap. It's like rain X for the whole car. Yeah. Okay. I get that. There are some aftermarket products that are quote unquote ceramic products. But what I think the question was asked about was these high priced expert applied ceramic coatings that dealerships typically sell you at the point of sale they on sell you they upsell you whatever you want to call it they're much more of an expert thing and the application of them is much more of a detailed process and it's pretty expensive and as i discussed the conditions are hard to cope with but sure you can buy aftermarket products with the word ceramic in them not the same thing. If you want to polish your car with something with ceramic on the label, then, hey, knock yourself out. Tim Taylor says, from over the ditch in Sheep Shagistan, Sheep Shaggers land, love your podcast, JC. Best out of three games rugby. <laughs> I am talking Bledisloe Cup 2020 Wallabies v All Blacks. Crank up the barbecue. Yeah, okay. I'm allergic to ball sports, so I'm only vestigially aware what you are talking about, but... I'll take your word for it on all of that. And I do love our friends over there in Sheep Shagistan. You've done such a good job keeping COVID-19 at bay. And you do seem to get on with it over there. And it is remarkably green. And you don't have fires or venomous critters like us. Maybe that's why you're so soft. Um, <laughs> Neko G says, Mustang complies with ARDC standards of America companies, which stands for acceptable rate of death children. So shut up. Yeah, look, there's another point here that that comes to light based on this sort of lighthearted comment. All right. Mustang complies with all applicable ADRs for crashworthiness. And that tells me, among other things, that the standards for crashworthiness are so ridiculously out of date right? The fact that we even need a non-regulatory virtual charity called ANCAP 
to keep car makers honest is the biggest red flag to me of all time that our regulatory apparatus needs a size 12 boot up its ass because surely the crashworthiness of vehicles, if anything was if if anything warranted regulatory oversight and adaptation in the time domain so that we were getting contemporary information from an unimpeachable source would it not be that and would this not be the perfect opportunity for a regulatory apparatus so that was a joke obviously from neko but basically he highlights a very serious problem in our uh, regulatory apparatus not just here in australia but around the world right now we'll just keep going for another couple of minutes here on some of the chats because you guys have been very generous in participating in the show and i want to give as much of a voice as i possibly can to you and don't forget we will be doing this again tomorrow night at 8 30 which is 23 hours away Sydney time. Okay, so get your questions ready and I won't hog the majority of that program. I'll throw it straight to you and we'll get into your comments. I'll just fill it to the extent that I can in this environment. Uh, Ian M says, I30N for the sprint to the shops, Mustang for the annoying rich relative, Stinger for the quick trip across the country, Triton top model for the bush and Fraser Island. Yeah, the fantasy garage is a thing, isn't it? The fantasy garage really is a thing. And I I love i30N. I don't know that I would own one because that real hard performance driving thing, the novelty might wear off in the context of driving it every day. And I might want a car that was a bit softer edge but still responsive to drive in a real world context. And let's not forget, if you are... If you are driving an i30N at or close to the limit of its performance on a public road, you are being an antisocial cock. There's no other analysis, right? If you're that fast, that close to the limit, and that car has outstanding limits, the the dichotomy of cars like that is you can't responsibly use them the way their designers intended them to be used on a public road, right? I'd actually have more enjoyment driving something like an i30 N-Line or a Kia Cerato GT or a car of that nature, maybe a Mazda 3 uh, G25 Astina in an engaging driving context on made roads. But I do love that rev matching with the manual i30 N in any sort of in any sort of driving context, I'm in love with that. And the handling dynamics are awesome. It's just that if you're the kind of dude who really likes getting a car up to the limit of its performance and really cracking on, you can't get close to that limit in an i30N on a public road and be responsible. You can certainly do it, okay? It's just that you're being a bit of an antisocial dick when you do, which is kind of unfortunate. So, uh, John Payor says, I'm desperate to know which I should buy, the petrol or the diesel Kia Sportage. What should I think about here? Diesel every time, you know, unless money is really a thing because the petrol will be cheaper, but the diesel has all-wheel drive. It produces heaps more mid-range power, which means it goes better in a raft of ordinary driving situations. It's going to return 20 to 25% better fuel economy for any given style of driving. It's going to have more range out there on the open road. And 
The only caveat there is you'd want to ensure the health of the diesel particulate filter. But to do that, all you've really got to do is get out on the open road for about 40 minutes, once a fortnight. And I think you could stretch that in the case of Hyundai Kia because I've never had a complaint about DPF failures in Hyundai Kia diesels. So their R&D and the integration of that system appears to be fairly robust. And I was talking off the record to a tech dude there who didn't want to be named, but he basically said they do a pretty good job passively regenerating. So in addition to having a proper regeneration run on the open road, they sort of have a little sip at regeneration in ordinary driving situations. They can do it for a minute here and a minute there and kind of burn off those particles uh, incrementally in traffic is basically what he was saying. But to be safe, and it's good for all cars anyway, to get them out on the open road once every fortnight because it purifies the oil by evaporating off all the volatile contaminants. And if you've got a diesel, it kind of goes a long way to ensuring the health of your diesel particle filter. But from a pure ownership uh, you know, driving enjoyment, conse- uh, you know, consequential benefit thing, I'd suggest that the diesel is the one to have. In all of those SUVs, Sportage, Tucson, uh, certainly in the larger SUVs, the Santa Fe and Sorento as well, and probably the upcoming Palisade as well, although I'm not sure it might be diesel only. Uh, Graham Johnson now says, in awe of the organisation of your workshop, but however, seeing there is a box of quality Barco sockets sitting in front of Ryobi battery-powered tools. Very disconcerting, Ryobi. Seriously? Yeah, tool snobbery is just the same as uh, car snobbery, isn't it? The Ryobi thing is fine. Like, I got a bunch of Ryobi power tools. I actually have some uh, Milwaukee tools as well, and the Milwaukee ones certainly are a step up. But from the point of view of just doing ordinary stuff around the house, dude, like drilling little holes in pieces of wood and driving screws into pieces of wood and this and that, you know, Ryobi stuff really is fine. And it's a fraction of the price. I really think the benefit in uh, premium tools like Milwaukee, and let's face it, Barco is like cheap snap-on, okay? They're actually owned by the same company. Barco and snap-on are Barco is a brand owned by Snap-on, if memory serves. Certainly the ownership is shared between them, but I think that's how the hierarchy rolls. Anyway, the the bottom line is, if you're a dude like me who use the tool, uses tools um, more than probably most people, but I'm not a tradie, then the odd Ryobi tool is fine, mate. Come on. You know, being a tool snob is just as bad as being a car snob. And the Milwaukee drill driver and drill I've got, and certainly the... Uh, the uh, jigsaw is awesome, you know, much better than the Ryobi ones. But if you're standing on the top of a ladder and all you're doing is drilling three holes in a piece of wood and then putting a few screws in for a bracket, then, dude, it's not worth it for the Milwaukee. It's really not, at least not in my view. But I get the tool snobbery thing. And look, let me know, too, if you want me to do some more tool thing because... There's so much tool this and tool that relating to cars, and I see so many people using tools badly, like non-tradey enthusiasts giving people bad advice and demonstrating bad practices with tools. If you ever want me to go through any of that, just let me know because we can do a whole thing on that, and you can uh, essentially... Uh, just tell me where I went wrong if you're a hardcore tradie and uh, hopefully we'll prevent a few people from being injured by, you know, standing in the plane of rotation of their friggin' angle grinder, which is a pet peeve of mine. Or wearing gloves 
wearing gloves when you use an angle grinder. Like, sorry. How, what a recipe to hurt yourself. Anyway, don't get me started. I, I have a soapbox over there and I'm not afraid to use it, you know. Uh, Tone says, uh, Tone says, Milwaukee is just Ryobi for wankers. I actually do see a quality difference in the tools and the, the, the battery life too. The batteries are bit more serious with Milwaukee and the tradies I've spoken to who use Milwaukee like electricians and that they're drilling holes in masonry all friggin day long to get cables through they're using plumbers same thing they're using Milwaukee tools and tools of that nature they're spending more money on tools and the main benefit as I see it is this longevity in a harsh use environment so James Jackson says, just wanted to say I was pleased to catch you live today. We'll be sure to check in more often. Have a nice day down under. Certainly will, James. We're going to go live again in about 23, shortly, slightly less than 23 hours now. So if you're awake, you know, if you've got consciousness at that time and the boss is tolerating that kind of behavior, if you're in a different time zone, then feel free to join in. I'd love to have your company, mate. Uh, will says, me, me Rolls-Royce Phantom tends to use a bit of fuel. I certainly look at a hybrid version. Yeah, yeah, because if you can afford a Rolls-Royce Phantom, you really need, you really do need to concern yourself with the price of fuel, don't you, you peanut? Anyway, um, let's see what else is here. I'll fill it an- one last comment, and then I will sign off before my voice collapses. Darf26 says, what are your thoughts on the risk of expensive repairs and higher initial cost with diesels versus the limit the limited amount of fuel savings yeah that is absolutely a thing okay the fuel is an incremental benefit but i tend to think of that as like you pay two and a half grand more or something for the diesel engine and if it's coupled with all-wheel drive quite often you're paying four grand more or something for the diesel powertrain and then to start saving incrementally on fuel is a little bit indefensible if all you're doing it for is economically rational grounds and i would say that yes if you manage to put petrol in your diesel vehicle and then drive it and you destroy the high-pressure fuel pump and consequentially give all four to six of your injectors atherosclerosis and they just do the nose plant into the lobster beast, metaphorically, then that is bad, isn't it? And it's going to be a fifteen dollars to $20,000 repair bill if you take it to a dealership. So there is this risk with the... In particular, the aging diesel could cost you a lot or the diesel that you make a massive mistake in could cost you a lot. If you don't get it serviced and the turbocharger blows up or you have a problem with that fuel delivery system, it is a frigging financial disaster. And I speak as the owner of two direct-injected diesel engines. I've got a 2019 model Hyundai Santa Fe diesel just outside the fat cave here and also a brand new issue, like four months old, uh, Mitsubishi Triton GSR dual cab ute. And I hope like hell that I don't have one of those problems outside the warranty. And I'll probably keep both of those cars for, I don't know, five or six years and I'll run the mad experiment myself and see if it was worth putting my money where my mouth is in relation to those products. But I'm happy to own the diesel. I'm happy with the customer support that I'd get from Hyundai or Mitsubishi if there was a reasonable consumer law case for their support outside warranty. I think I'd get it and I think you'd get it. I mean, I guess I am a special case because I can just pick up the phone and talk to the right person and they do know I have a large online audience that I could have a bleep to. But that's not really the point. 
and that's not the basis of my recommendation to uh, to you and other people like you in your position. I know by virtue of the number of complaints I receive and the way those complaints get handled, I don't get very many complaints about Mitsubishis or um, Kias or Subarus or Hyundais. And when I do get complaints, and those complaints are not, not from the nutbag city limits, right? They're not, they're not just... Um, vexatious complaints from people with an axe to grind who regret buying a car and they they, they they experience this remorse and they want to engineer up an excuse to have it bought back for them you know if it's a legitimate complaint i see those brands really looking over uh, after those customers both within the warranty and outside the warranty when the complaints are justified so you know i i do think the risk of expensive repairs with diesels is a thing particularly if you own an aging land cruiser or something with 200,000 k's on it you you frankly do not deserve very much support from toyota if you've got a car that's that old because component failure is a thing the second law of thermodynamics affects us all i mean amazingly enough i used to be desirable to women it's hard to believe now isn't it but things wear out everything wears out the second law of thermodynamics right it's if there is a god I don't believe there is, but if I'm sort of gobsmacked at the end and I do have an interview and, you know, there is a chance to talk to the big guy, that's one of the questions I'm going to ask him is about the second law of thermodynamics. I'm going to say, what a terrible design flaw in the universe, God. What were you thinking? You know, because fancy designing something as miraculous as the universe and then using the second law effectively to consign it to a state of heat death and then giving us all these problems in our daily lives that result directly from the second law, such as our cars wearing out and requiring expensive repairs. That absolutely sucks. <laughs> I think you'd agree. So, look, that's just about it from me, but I would sincerely like to thank you for your company this evening. And uh, I didn't plan on going for quite this long, but there were some great comments there from all of you and plenty, of course, that I did not get a chance to read out. And that's regrettable, but you know, you could achieve perfection only with the benefit of infinite time, right? And that's kind of this situation. So I'm sorry if I didn't get to one of your questions, but there's always tomorrow. So it's now uh, quarter to 10 on Wednesday evening, the 28th of October. I'm John Cadogan. Thank you very much for your company. I'll be back on air live and we'll be doing Ask Me Anything for a minimum of one hour tomorrow night at 8.30pm Sydney time, which of course is also 830 in Melbourne and I think it's 7.30 currently in Brisbane. Uh, it, well, not currently, but obviously at 8.30 tomorrow. Here, it'll be 7.30 there and probably something like 5.30 in bloody... I don't know, Perth or something, and then it'll be 18 hours earlier in Los Angeles. So I don't know how you work all of that stuff out, but I'll be here in 23, 22 hours and 45 minutes, I think it is. Almost exactly. It is, almost exactly. And that's when I'll see you. So look, thanks for your company. I'll see you then. <laughs>